We're in this series that, that I've titled Beyond Religion. And uh, the, the sort of the premise, the spirit of the series is to say that it makes me cringe whenever I hear uh, someone talk about Jesus and his movement that he started in the same breath as religion. Sometimes people will say, so what got you interested in religion, Alex? And I throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, Because, like, nothing. (laughs) I'm totally not interested in religion. Um, And and I think what you see is that this thing that Jesus came to start uh, is so much bigger than, than religion and some of the things that we associate with religion. And so what we're doing, really through this series is we're looking through the book of Acts, which is, your, if you're brand new to the Bible, the book of Acts was the history book of, of the early church. It's sort of the chronicles of the adventures of the first followers of Jesus and how they started the church. And I think what we'll see is that, is that this, this was not a religion that they started. So uh, this morning, I want to talk about authenticity. I want to talk about hypocrisy. And I want to talk about how this thing that the early Christians began was way too real to be categorized as a religion. Like, Because when I think about religion, I think about, you know, it's often associated with hypocrisy and fakeness and all that. So we're going to talk about all that today, including three of the strangest stories in the book of Acts. And if you ever set out, and I hope you do this, to read the book of Acts from start to finish, I mean, it's like, you know, half an hour, it'd probably take 45 minutes, maybe an hour to read this history book. Um, you'll come across these three really weird stories, and so uh, I want you to have some context for that. Uh, to get things started, I feel like I haven't talked about the greatest movie of all time in a while. I'm talking, of course, about The Godfather. Um, <clears throat> it is the best of all time, and here's why. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about The Godfather trilogy is, is that... Um, it's not preachy, but he simply lets you observe the lifestyle and draw your own conclusions. Let me give you an example. Uh, you take in these cycles of violence and redemptive violence and crime, and it doesn't necessarily preach against it. In fact, at times it almost seems to glorify it until you see through the trilogy where it leads, and it leads to everybody either being dead, or in jail, or lonely, or paranoid. And you can kind of yourself see, oh, man, that's not good. Now, when you read so many of the history books of the Bible, you're you're reading ancient uh, Eastern accounts, and so many of them are written the same way. Where you read it and it doesn't say, and this is what I love about it, it doesn't say, and here's what you should believe about that. Instead it says, here, look what happened. And then we can wrestle with the text and we can try to figure out, so what's the significance of that? What does, what does that mean? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And, and one of the things also in, in the God, one more point from the Godfather, because I just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> um, does the same thing with religion. You'll notice from this, I mean, the term godfather is a religious term, right? And, and there's, there's um, 
church attendance, there's confession, there's first communion. At, at an infant baptism, that's like one of the climaxes of the first movie where there's like orchestrated hits going on outside while there's organ music and church service going on inside. And, and, and so you see weaving through this is this theme of hypocrisy, of how can religion, how can any form of Christianity be uplifted while at the same time this murderous, dishonest, um, criminal lifestyle is being lived outside the church doors, and we're kind of left to draw our own conclusions from that. So we're going to look at these stories from the book of Acts, and, and honestly, when you read it in the book of Acts, it's not like, I mean, there's, there's some preaching going on, but a lot of it is left for us to draw the conclusions of why. Why did this happen? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning and hopefully find some so what, like why does it really matter for our life today. So let's do it. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 4 after I reorganize my notes because I forgot to after the first service. So slight pause. Or I could just like teach in reverse and see what, <coughs> see what happens. Okay. Uh, yeah, Acts 4. Here we go. <clears throat> Look at how the community that Jesus came to build takes place. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We're talking about thousands, by the way. Like, like 5,000 or more, okay? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul... And no one said they had any of the things that belonged to him, uh, th that it was his own. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> it's a mixture of pollen and baseball field dust, just like a cocktail now in my sinus cavities. <coughs> in case you wanted the picture of that. But they had everything in common. They had everything. Thousands of people had everything in common. This is what Jesus is building. Thousands of people had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles, the apostles were the closest uh, people who followed Jesus. And then after his resurrection and ascension, he commissioned them to go and continue on to build. They were the leaders of the church, the apostles. They were giving uh, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And, and so uh, there was not a needy person among them. There was not 5,000, all different walks of life, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles uh, Barnabas, that was their nickname for him, and it meant son of encouragement. So he was such an uplifting guy that they named him uh, encouragement, the encouragement guy. 
He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we get this picture of this community that's breaking out from nothing. Thousands of people who say, yes, I want to make this Jesus lifestyle real. And one of their regular practices was to say, hey, I got this, I got this summer home and I'm going to sell it. And you take this money and you make sure that when you find out there's a need, you, and they, there was trust and there was generosity and there was nothing. Everyone was like, hey, my house is your house and, and, and you don't need life insurance because I'm going to sell, you know, whatever. I mean, it was like just this incredible community of generosity. And, and there's, a, there's a moment when this guy named Barnabas, uh, named Joseph, uh, feels this tap from God and, and like, I'll just sell it all and give it all. And he does. And they celebrate this and they give him this nickname, man, you're the encouragement guy. You're the uplifter. And it's celebrated, okay? And it's all good. And then this happens. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This is important right here to understand the whole thing. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, it was your money. You didn't need to, like, pretend. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Apparently, the scheme was to be seen as Barnabas. It wasn't about the money. It was about him wanting the clout among the believers. I want a nickname. I want to be the example. But rather than give the whole thing, he inauthentically said, hey, here's what I made. Like he tried to present like this was everything. And, and there was something about that. So read on. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. <clears throat> now notice, that does not say that God killed him. It says when he heard, he died. Was as a, maybe God did. Like maybe God, I mean God obviously allowed it to happen. Maybe God caused it to happen. Maybe he just was overcome and had a heart. I have no idea. No idea. We don't know. We can only speculate. Now, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. In other words, like, was this the full amount of what you sold? And, and again, now, nothing said she had to bring that whole thing in. He's just exploiting the fact that they're trying to look like this, even though that wasn't where they really were or what they really did. And she said, yes, for so much. In other words, yeah, this is the whole amount. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They had just got done digging the hole and burying Ananias. They, they come in, they see her dead. They're like, Peter, come on, you're killing us. That was a pun, and I didn't even intend it. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, we'll get back to this in a little bit. And also notice it doesn't say that God killed her. It says that Peter spoke. Now, my theory, and this totally, like, take this for what it's worth. Um, God had, Jesus had given Peter authority. And it says, what you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. And he had the authority to speak healing and to raise the dead and things like that. And I wonder if it wasn't his authority also over her life. Like, I don't know that God necessarily told him. Like, I wonder if Peter that night wondered, ooh, should I have done that? Okay? Like, it could be that Ananias died of a heart attack. Peter did his own thing, and now they're both dead. I don't know. Doesn't tell us. We can only speculate. Okay? Regardless, there was a problem with the idea of posing like you had done this great and generous thing when really you had only done this generous thing. The problem was inauthenticity. We'll get to that in a minute. Weird story number two as you read through the book of Acts. If nothing else, maybe this will want you, make, you to want, make you want to read through the book of Acts if you haven't. Acts 8, we read the story of the David Copperfield of the ancient world. His name was Simon, and he dazzled the crowds with some kind of magic. Maybe it was some kind of black magic sorcery stuff that I don't understand. Maybe it was like sleight of hand, um, illusion stuff. I don't know, but he was a crowd pleaser. He made his living off of this. He loved magic. He loved to be the center of attention. Well, Simon himself is dazzled by the miracles he sees the apostles doing. The Bible says that they could put their hands on people and the miraculous would sort of just happen around that. And it doesn't really describe what that miraculous is all the time, but somehow there's some like Holy Spirit stuff going on through this and it's supernatural and, and here's what we read. And God was, well, wrong place, 18, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for, the Lord, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, why did Sapphira drop dead from her inauthentic desires and Simon didn't? I don't know. One of those mysteries. Who knows? 
But regardless, we see this weird story where there's money involved, there's payment involved, there's a desire to be someone you're not in the eyes of others involved, and it doesn't go well. This is a fail. We're learning from failures. This is one of the things I truly appreciate about the Bible. We get the ability to learn about what it means to be human, not only from some great biblical examples of success, but also the Bible includes failure. That's why I know this is not propaganda. Like the Bible is not early Christian propaganda because it includes all these failures. And these are epic fails of people. And the central theme is a, a lack of authentic expression of who you really are. More on that later. Now to an even weirder story. This is in Acts chapter 19. I got a typo up there. It's not um, Acts 8. It's Acts 19. Here we go. <coughs> Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul was another apostle. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I have no idea how that worked. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists for some reason, I think that's funny. The itinerant Jewish exorcist, under, like that's a thing, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, I don't know how exorcism works. I've never understood it. I don't know why apparently people from different religions back then could do this thing never really aspired to any of that, never went for the exorcist license. Um, they're saying, they out there saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're kind of saying to these demons, I command you by this guy that Paul knows. Because they see that kind of thing working for the apostles. So they're just trying the, the, the magic words out. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Now, I would have loved to have seen their faces when that kind of a thing comes out. Um, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounding, wounded. Now, I again, that's just what we get. It's like, you know, Luke is, is talking about these stories. He has so many to choose from. And he says, and then there was this time where they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And then there was this time. And like, he, we don't, all we see here is this crazy story where, again, someone is trying to be someone that they are not. And it doesn't go well. So we see this theme 
Really bad things happen in the Jesus movement when you try to be someone that you are not. So we just need to stop it. Now, let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira for a moment. Is hypocrisy a problem today in the church throughout the country? I'd say yes. Like, do you know, anybody here know of somebody who refuses to set foot in a church because of the hypocrisy they've observed, present or past? I certainly do. Um, This is still a problem, and it is a huge deterrent to the kind of community that Jesus was out to build. So we see in the book of Luke, there's this incredible community of, of generosity, of authentic generosity, of love, of grace, of acceptance happening. And there's this like benchmark of this guy who goes out and he's celebrated because he sells and he gives it all. And he's celebrated. But then this guy and his wife decide, I want all the credit but I'm only going to do half, and I'm going to lie about it. And that introduces hypocrisy, uh, inauthenticity, fakeness, into this fresh new movement. And I think one of the reasons that you see such a harsh judgment is because Peter recognizes the dangers of inauthentic living on this new thing that God is building. You see, in, in, in Scripture, God doesn't drop the hammer on what a lot of the religious world condemns as like the big sin. Like when you look categorically at Jesus' ministry, um, there is free and loving and, and uh, a gracious interaction between Jesus and prostitutes. Or, or between Jesus and people battling all kinds of addictions. Like I have friends who, who say, and I hear this actually quite a bit. Um, we'll be talking, you know, some mutual friend that has a mutual friend. They're like, oh, hey, this is, this is Bob. And, and this is Alex. He, he's a pastor. So watch your language. And, and, uh, and then, then, then Bob says something like, well, if I ever come through your doors, your building's going to get struck by lightning. You know, something along those lines, like where this, this sort of almost this joking thing about how God would somehow drop the hammer from, from someone with a colorfully sinful lifestyle. But that's not where we see this. In Scripture, when God really drops the hammer, it's usually not over uh, those worldly kind of sins. It's in the context of a quote-unquote religious leader doing something inauthentic. Like, like, Jesus just hates that. He calls the religious leaders of his day, his most venomous words are for them. Snakes, calls them vipers, calls them whitewashed tombs. Hypocrites, fools. Like, that's not the kind of language Jesus uses for recovering prostitutes. Or for embezzlers. So when I look and when I see this sin cost Ananias and Sapphira their life, 
And that's not typical in the book of Acts. And my take on that is that whether it was wholly an act of God or whether it was Peter with his apostolic authority, uh, I think that Luke includes that right after he says, and notice the progression here, there's this amazing, generous community breaking out where everybody has everything in common and needs are being met, and then this happened. And I think we can see the contrast because that was something that was such a threat to the former. Like inauthentic expression was such a threat to what God was doing in this generous and authentic community that great fear broke out. Everybody realized, ooh, better not do that. And then we see more of the epic, like of all the failures, and I'm sure there was plenty of failing going on in the early church because we're humans. The accounts that make it in that are the strangest in the book of Acts have to do with someone projecting to be someone they are not. So whenever you see that in the church, realize that this is something that God has fought against since the start of the movement because that is not what this movement is about. Authenticity. Okay, a few thoughts on how we could apply this stuff to our life. Um, number one, don't talk to demons. Number one, <clears throat> the Bible spends a lot of time and energy. The Bible spends a lot of time and energy giving the accounts and categor categorically condemning hypocrisy. The Bible, like we would be here all day if I were to just read the stories of the men, uh, and women, usually men, of the men and women, usually men, who, who misuse their authority in their leadership or in their belonging to the community of God. The Bible is filled with stories of people who get it wrong. The Bible itself spends a lot of time showing this is what happens when you try to be something that you're not. This is how dangerous it is when you act like you're here and you're really here. So the next time, maybe, maybe this is you, maybe you struggle with the trustworthiness of Scripture because you see the hypocrisy in the church. Maybe the person you work with struggles with the authority of Scripture or the value in the community of Jesus because of the hypocrisy they see. Realize this is not an indictment against the Bible. The Bible agrees. Yes, that's a problem. If you hate hypocrisy, you probably could have written the Bible. It's not an indictment against Scripture. It affirms Scripture because Scripture spends a lot of time and energy saying, stop. Stop it. Stop trying to be something you're not. It never goes well. And it's, a, it's detrimental to this movement that Jesus, that Jesus came to bring. Secondly, second thought, 
<coughs> Peter tells Ananias, while it remains sold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter seems to be saying, God never required that, that you did this. Like, if you just want to sell your land and, and give a portion to those in need, that, that's great. Nothing says you even had to go sell it. The property was yours. So, so this is not about uh, somebody not giving enough. This is about somebody wanting credit but not putting in the work. This is about hypocrisy. This is about lies. This is about inauthentic living. They wanted to be seen as here. And they were willing to do something inauthentic to get there. That's what the story is about. Because I think one of the great dangers of what they did is it almost paves the way to perfectionism. And this is not a perfectionist movement. This is not a movement that like celebrates perfection and says, there, that's you getting it right. This is not a movement that says, uh, we have to like try to earn something by doing something. This is a movement that celebrates, man, we're good because God has done the work to make us good. So I think one of the things that God does is he snuffs out. Like, I don't want a group of people who think I have to do this so that I can be seen as this. Like, that brings me relief, actually, that that, that, that was something that God was willing to step in. Now, side note, I personally, I think we will, we will sit at the table with Ananias someday in the new heaven and the new earth, and, like, they're good because it wasn't about them doing or not doing anything. And, and I'm going to be there sitting with Ananias and saying, oh, I'm glad you took the hit on that. Because believe me, there were plenty of times when God could have sniped me. They took the fall so that we could clearly see this is not what it's about. And I think the danger, one of the great dangers was that this is not, there's no reason to think I got to be seen as here. Not in this movement. Not, not in what God has come to do. Now, Shoot for here. Like, like we want to we, we, we do great sacrificial things for God, but that's not like once we do that, somehow we're more in. And that brings me to the, the third point that you can see kind of in the, uh, the, the exorcist thing. Uh, but it's certainly there in all that. Um, not only is there no need to pretend to be someone you're not in this movement, um, because none of us like belong here anyway, but not only is there no need, it's, it's also dangerous because like you, when you, if you look at Simon, the sorcerer guy, who wanted to be able to do what Peter could do, and this is, for me, this is a big deal. Simon, the sorcerer guy, wanted to have the authority and the, the ability to do what Peter could do, but, but Peter... 
He wasn't there when Peter stepped away from a successful business. Peter had a successful business at the Sea of Galilee. He stepped away. He left it all to follow Jesus. And in doing so, there's this journey of uh, Peter was listening to Jesus for hours and wrestling with his teaching for hours and, and trying and failing and, and, and disappointing people and, and, and being rebuked by Jesus. And, and uh, like, like Simon wanted to be able to do what Peter could do. He wanted to be here, but he hadn't done the work to get there. And, and when you see people that are here, there was a time when they were here and they battled their way daily through the ebb and flow of life, through the trials and failures, walking with Jesus to get to where they are. And you can't think that you should be where they are. Maybe you notice that someone has an incredible prayer life or that they really know a lot about Scripture. They really have a lot of life wisdom. Whatever it is, they can do this thing. And, and you just want to be able to do that. And you, man... I think if you talk with them about it, number one, they'd say, no, I'm really here. But, but what you're not seeing is what it took to get there. And so this is a story for me about um, it's a dangerous thing for your soul and for the rest of the world around you when you feel like you should step in where you haven't done the work. Um, that's why authenticity is so important. All right, one last thing. We're going to take communion. And uh, let, uh, what I want is for this, it's a lot of different information, and this is kind of, I want this to be your sort of uh, last moment of contemplation before you go out there in the real world. So this is your time to kind of wrestle with all this and figure out, man, what's God really saying to me here? But I think it's also the perfect way to close this out because really when you think about that early communion table, this is a ritual that started 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, hey, when you get together, take some bread and, and wine. We use juice. Take some bread and wine and remember uh, my body and my blood and that I'm doing the work on the cross. I'm giving myself for you. I'm paying your death penalty. However you want to look at it, remember my love for you. And that's why you're here. And, and, and the Bible says, that in the book of Acts, it says that the first day of the week they met, they celebrated communion together, they ate together. And one of the most important themes around that table that we see in Scripture throughout the New Testament was the understanding of equality at that table. Because the truth is, this was the table where you had Peter sitting, who was a disciple who walked with Jesus, and now he was an apostle. And he may have been sitting next to a prostitute who was getting over the lifestyle, or someone who just that month had sacrificed to a Roman pagan god. And they're there as equals at that table. And my point is, there was no need to be someone that you're not, because it was all, there, there's this lightness. See, there's a heaviness that comes. There's a heaviness that comes from feeling like you have to be someone that you're not. But when you realize we're good, we're children of God, there is no need to prove anything. There's a lightness. And so what, I'm, what I want to just suggest that you do is, is sit at this symbolic table with let, let that lightness come over you. Just let this be a light moment of like inner celebration that we're good as we are because God loves us 
as we are, and there's no need to be anything other than fallen human beings saved by God, doing our best to be a part of this generous movement, but 100% authentic. There's no need for anything other than that. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, take communion this morning, um, we remember that we are only here because you have set the table for us. And we're thankful that you love us as we are, and we are here as equals with each other through uh, your generosity in Jesus' name.